Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be meeting the new Green Spokesman for Digital Rights and IT, David Shoebridge. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia's Josh Taylor. Josh! Mm. It's been a big week of global political intrigue and tension. We've had Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan and China beginning their naval manoeuvres nearby. But the geopolitics has also been extending into the platform wars. And one of your colleagues in um, Guardian UK, um, Alex Hearn, has been looking into a number of reports raising real concerns around the way TikTok may or may not be extracting data. Do you want to talk us through those findings and the provocation in Alex's work? Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, there was um, an Internet 2.0 put out. It's this joint um, Australian-US um, company that looked into sort of all the all the permissions and things that that TikTok asks for. And, it, and it's stuff from like your calendar, your, your contacts, information about the device and things like that. It got quite sort of what I would call alarmist media coverage about it because it was basically going, oh, look at this scary Chinese popular app that that is asking for all this information, which my, my view, and this is this is sort of expressed in, in Alex's piece quite strongly, is that yes, TikTok is asking for a lot of information that yes, that is concerning, but it is no more concerning than the, the kind of stuff that so many other apps already ask for already. And the, the the main thrust seems to be that you're getting politicians in US, UK and Australia getting quite concerned about TikTok purely on the basis that it's quite a successful social media platform that also happens to be Chinese, you know, the questions that it raises around, you know, what what's been, what's happening with user data and things like that. And then, you know, I'm all for caring about what happens with user data and, and user privacy and things like that, but to limit the discussion only to TikTok and only what the Chinese government may or may not be doing with it, I think is the wrong argument to be mm. to be having on that. So that that's basically what um Alex's piece goes into, and we've seen a bit of it this week as well. You know, the <laughs> the information commissioner is looking into the response to that report to that report and seeing talking to TikTok about you know what sort of data it's collecting, and there've been a few things they might be able to um, enlighten us a bit more. MPs and staff and their staff getting briefings about potential issues with using social media apps on their phone that might be used for work and communications and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think TikTok is a lot of the focus now, but I think. From a government point of view, user privacy on you know all apps, not just TikTok, is probably where the focus needs to be. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw that to David in a sec. But before we get there, Lizzie, it kind of reminds me of the fascinating discussion we had with um, Ellen Broad a couple of weeks ago around cybernetics, where she kind of said, if we get into the position of a trolley dilemma, deciding whether the driverless car is going to hit the old person or the young person, we've probably ended up asking the wrong question. And it feels like this is a similar example of that, you know, which of the global um, platforms do we want to be harvesting our data least? Yeah, exactly, because you're forced into making a very um, narrow decision while the context in which these platforms operate is kind of left unquestioned. To me, it also recalled... um, the work of the Centre for Humane Technology and Tristan Harris, who made the Social Dilemma documentary, because 
that's a group of technologists that came out of Silicon Valley who are now like tech execs with regrets who are talking about how I built this product, but actually I think it's really harmful. And in recent times, they've also been making policy submissions where they deliberately talk about how American technology companies, you know, they may have these problems, but the need to reform them is more is, is so important because they're so much better than Chinese technology companies. And it becomes this kind of framework or this platform for arguing about diplomacy, really, or uh, arguing for a, a American liberal conception of capitalism married with rights in, in quite a limited way, uh, as opposed to authoritarian platforms like TikTok, which I think is disingenuous and also a pretty troubling way of framing these kinds of discussions. There's very few people who end up in the room who are advocating for users as people who have rights as against companies and as against the state as well. And um, I, yeah, I would like to see more holistic discussions of this for that reason too, so that then US tech companies don't get to pitch themselves as being preferable in a geopolitical context either. Yeah, well, let's make us some news, David. What's, what, what, what are the instructions here on um, how you should be ticking and talking? Well, I think if I tell you, I have to, you know, then shut down your platform. It's, uh, <laughs> in fact, at the, um, I went to Senate school before the whole thing kicked off and we got a, a series of security briefings and it's sensible to have security briefings, you know, about personal security and online security and like, but um, a man who I was introduced only as Owen and we couldn't have his actual name, first or second name, <laughs> came from ASIO and which was kind of amusing. He's he had a kind of generation of fear and anxiety and to, to see you surrounded by threats online and um, in real life and gave advice that was, you know, I don't know how you meant to take this advice on as an elected representative. Uh, we should be paying for professional risk assessments before we meet with people oh. and engage in all these high levels of security assessment, assuming that everyone's out there trying to corrupt or otherwise sabotage us. There were elements of it that were quite farcical, but I think, you know, there, there, there are clearly people out there trying to subvert politicians. I think it's wrong to, to, to try and pretend there's no threats, but the, the nature of the advice I received was a kind of on the extreme anxiety level which really has no connection with what you've got to do as a politician. So if, if we also, I mean, part of the advice we got was, well, you'll probably advertise you go to events, but you shouldn't tell people you're going to events because if you tell people you're going to events on social media, then bad players will know where you are. And, um, and I kind of thought, you know, as someone who likes turning up to rallies and actually having people hear what I say, being you know, scared off engaging on social media because people might turn up seemed to me advice that, well, I found it odd to give that to politicians, to be honest. And on a personal level, are you TikToking? And what are, um, I guess more, more interestingly, which platforms do you feel are useful for you in terms of the work you're doing? Well, I think they, they have different uses and they get to different people and different demographics. The one that I'm most comfortable using just casually throughout the day is probably Twitter. And that's kind of useful for going to some of the political class in some ways. You know, it's got a broader audience than that, but it goes there, it goes to journalists quite well. And I, it's rapid and I'm comfortable with doing that with a lot of immediacy. Uh, obviously, you know, Facebook is important. Facebook gets to an older demographic as a general rule, but an important demographic. But, you know, the the area where my team is putting more effort into is definitely Instagram. And also, you know, they generating 
some TikTok content that we largely put through the Australian Young Greens platform, which has a really good engagement. And in fact, we spent a fair bit of effort and resources on that mm. in the election campaign. The Australian Greens TikTok, a lot of that generated by Young Greens who were given resources and a bit of a free hand to generate content. And that ended up having really amazing levels of engagement. Mm. And, and it still has levels of engagement. So, you know, I, I, I look at all of these platforms with a high degree of scepticism in terms of their ownership and their abuse and use of our data. And you're caught, caught in this bind. I mean, you could take an absolute purity point and say, well, they've all got evil elements and therefore I, I won't engage. But you'd have a pretty quiet time. Well, as somebody who has sworn um, digital rights watch off Facebook, Lizzie O'Shea, Let's talk about your issue today, which is around the way that the transition, I guess, from remote learning back to the classroom has not ended the surveillance of kids. Yeah, well, we were we were just joking before this started about Instagram's glasses. You know, Josh has got a pair of glasses that he was putting on. <coughs> Apparently, he can record your life, and um, and also this this smart scarf by Manchester Football Club, Manchester City, I think. You know, to track people, but fans' behaviour, and you know, we were talking about the ubiquity of these devices and the associated surveillance and one place where this is probably the most prevalent is actually in mm. educational environments and where people have almost no rights which is children to try and stop devices technology coming into their educational environment and surveilling what they're up to and you know in the pandemic of course there was a, a turn to learning from home using technology and obviously that was that had its own kind of inequalities built into it but was a hugely useful thing to be able to continue education online but some of the technologies of surveillance that were used at that time are now seemingly here to stay and there's a report that's come out for the Centre for Democracy and Technology about the use of this kind of technology in US schools platforms that allow teachers to surveil students' screens so they can see what they're looking at, they can see if they're being distracted. Um, but there's a whole suite of these products that are being used in school environments, including to monitor, obviously, the attention span of children and whether they're concentrating on the task at hand, but also to track for um, threats of violence. Um, interestingly, the, the school in Uvalde where the uh, mass shooting recently occurred had purchased one of these programs to try and detect potential risks of violence and of course didn't didn't detect the any activity on the mass shooters page or um, engagement online and to my mind it's really problematic firstly because I don't think children have no rights I think we have to treat them as people who have rights so that um, that's the, and that they are just aren't just an individuals that have things done to them by technology companies and figures of authority because that's a lesson they'll carry with them for the rest of their lives if that's what they're taught. But also, how do you actually push back against this narrative of safety, of protecting children and, and protecting other people from potential risks of violence? I think that's an interesting question. There are a couple of examples where, you know, children might be looking up legitimate content, you know, in post-road decision-making territory. Um, we're looking at potentially kids looking up um, reproductive rights issues, perhaps accessing reproductive health services that might be prohibited by uh, legislation, which is particularly troubling, or kids that aren't out to their parents who then end up being outed to their parents because that might be alerted, um, their parents may be alerted by a school who thinks that this is appropriate when it's not. And that's maybe some of the ways we start to talk about it, these examples of kids' uh, privacy being violated and having real-world consequences. But I think we sort of have to return to this idea that kids do have rights mm. and Behavioural problems, those kinds of things, attention span problems probably have to be dealt with other than by these kinds of technology platforms. But I don't know, Pete, you're the you're the parent of a teenage kid. You probably have a, have a stronger not, view on this. 
I, I had an entire um, period where I was going, if there was only the perfect app to moderate, and you know what it is, it's actually spending time with the kids. Um, so <laughs> the other piece in here, though, Josh, which is interesting, is that it's not just kids. There's also a report in the Oz this week, a bunch of housemates in what I think was a share house, but maybe even a boarding house, discovered it, their landlord had installed a CCTV camera inside their home with no notice. It feels like, again, the, the people with the less power are being watched the most. Yeah, I think the way that they justified that was saying that, you know, you only rent your room, the common areas are basically ours, and we were just doing this for security reasons, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that power dynamic again. You know, we're in a particularly tight rental market where landlords can kind of get away with much more than they otherwise would because, um, people are desperate for housing at the moment uh affordable housing even more so yeah this is probably sort of on the more extreme end of the spectrum but i wouldn't be surprised if you see stuff like this i saw i saw a post floating around the other day and it was a little bit old but someone saying oh i've got solar panels on my on my rooftop that means my my tenant is getting cheaper electricity can i somehow charge them for that as well so just stuff like that i can see you know mm. people sort of using technology <clears throat> to try and find more ways of extracting more money or, or more control over over you know land uh, tenants and things like that the other thing yeah. i'd raise with the kids as well is like you know, when I was in school and, and internet filtering was coming up and stuff like that, kids would get around it like super quickly. No, you can't sort of really force a technology student, uh, technology solution to try and get kids to do what you want. You have to educate them. You have to bring them along with it. And I, I think it's it's kind of going to what Lizzie was saying. You've got to treat them like people. You can't just assume that, you know, you can put this technological control on them and they're going to be able to just, you know, abide by the rules that you want. You don't know, have to bringing them along with it as well. It does yeah, remind me of that digital pen license <laughs> proposal that was put by the LP before the last election. I don't know if David's got a view on that, but, you know, it was widely mocked because pen licenses just kind of silly. And the idea that you need a license to go on the internet is silly. But I sort of understood the underlying sentiment that we have to find a way to help kids learn how to not be distracted all the time by these machines that are designed to distract you. And that one of the key skills of people in the 21st century is managing that distraction this whole billion trillion dollar industry that's devoted to trying to extract data from you extract your engagement so we do do kids a disservice if instead of talking about that and openly and trying to encourage programs of literacy around that we instead say oh we're going to monitor your screen and force you to to make sure that you're not checking on youtube which strikes me as like the cop approach rather than the approach that's about helping children build skills to be able to deal with that endless thread of distraction yeah, David, yeah. It's, it's often framed up as a safety measure and a kids' well-being measure. I think the interesting thing in this research out of the US was it wasn't being used in a safety way, it was being used in a policing way. I don't know how you approach an issue. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole idea that the you, you've got this, you, there are problems about, you know, platforms driving kids onto extremism, exposing kids to you know, potentially quite dangerous material. But the idea that you solve that by surveilling the kids and not the platform seems to me to be pretty extraordinary. Uh, so so Labor's policy is this smart kids kind of digital licensing regime, which is a kind of pen license, digital pen license mark two. Now, there, there, there probably is a role for talking to kids and giving them sort of a better insight into what their behaviour online will expose them to and, and being aware of that. But, you know, I think there, 
I actually agree with you, Pete. The, the, the best thing you can do, I've got two teenage daughters, the best thing you can do is spend time with them, not grab their phone and run through their Instagram stream and their TikTok um, account and, and try and chase it down for no other reason than they're probably hiding their real account from you anyhow. But I think that whole approach that the, the problem of the kids and we surveil and educate kids as opposed to the problem is the platforms and we should be focusing our attention on the platforms. Uh, I think that, and, and again, you know, we've had some initial chats with our Labor counterpart in the communication space. And when we when we raised the platforms as the issue as opposed to the kids, there was already sort of pushback and hesitancy in that space. Mm. Um, you know, we don't want to cramp innovation. We, we don't want to have big fight with the platforms. Well, actually, we, we may need to have a big fight with the platforms mm. at some point. And we will go into that in more detail soon. I might just round out our week in news. There's just a few into our favourite mega platform, Meta. There's a few different stories. I'm trying to make sense of how they all fit together. So firstly, Meta's having a big fight with academics over access to political ads ahead of the 2022 midterms. We know they cut off access to CrowdTangle some time ago, but now it appears they're actually fighting the academics from NYU over using a plug-in, which was what some of our friends at QUT and um, Monash were doing in the Australian election, where you're almost crowdsourcing information. Um, so they're now trying to pull that back. So they're doing that. At the same time, announcing in the US they're winding back its deals with news outlets, shifting its focus to what it says, the creator economy from the news economy. So I guess my question here is, if you put those two together, they're they, they, they still want to do the political advertising and make as much as they can out of that, but they're not actually interested in supporting fact-based public debates. Is that a tenable position to take, Lizzie? And I know we've had difference of opinion on the news media bargaining code. I'm be interested in David's views on that as well, but it feels like that, that party might be ending soon if Facebook goes down this path of pulling back from news altogether. Or is it a good thing if they just say we're not interested in it this isn't the place for facts anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on one level, I sort of think, okay, well, to some degree, I can see the utility of a platform being purely social rather than focused on delivering news, because that's really not what Facebook is ought to be doing. But on another level, that is where a lot of news sharing happens. So pretending that's not true is, is a particular problem. I'm sort of, yeah, I must admit, I'm, I'm not entirely surprised by this at all. I, I think they are looking for ways to continue engagement, ways to keep people on their platform. You know, they're, they're really struggling. They're, they're posting losses. They're, they're, their vulnerability, their business model is now on full display um, you know changes to the way apple allows information to be collected from the apps uh, that are on their phones has caused huge problems for um, meta's bottom line and i think they're looking at trying to find ways to make sure that they hold on to their user base that their um, user numbers don't fall because this is their only real future to continue to try and grow or at least consolidate users as an audience for advertising so they've got to find ways to continue that engagement and i think investing in creators is probably what they've settled on rather than investing in news media. And maybe that's a function of the news media bargaining code being passed. So they're forced to then have to do it in quite an open way in relative terms. But to my mind, that's never been sufficient. I mean, we've talked about this so many times, Pete, when the, the news media bargaining 
bargaining code passed, it was there was among many questions. One of them was, okay, well, news um, journalists journalism is one way in which value is created or is distributed and exchanged on that platform to Facebook's benefit. But lots of other creatives provide a similar service, and they're not being talked about as being compensated. And there was always this suggestion that that might happen later. And I don't think that that is going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, for obvious market reasons, then Facebook's leaning into that aspect. I would just say we're about to release our report on rebalancing the internet economy, which looks at exactly some of these issues, how creatives, how um, activists, how musicians use these kinds of platforms and how they're not working for them and what the government could do about that. And, you know, so maybe that's something we can talk about when that report gets released. Josh, do we know what Facebook means when it says it's going to pay for creators? Like, I think it'll probably be a little bit like a, a YouTube-style ad-supporting system. I'm not really too sure. Um, just on the news tab thing, I asked yeah. I asked Meta about what that meant for the news media bargaining code in Australia, and they said had no impact at all. But obviously, those deals will have a time limit on them. And the the important thing to watch is the former government launched. Uh, as part of the news media bargain code, there was a, a review that was built into it. So after a year, they've started to review it. Um, that closed, I think, just before, just after the election. And the new government has not published any of the submissions from it. I asked them for it and they said they're not going to publish it until the um, the actual paper that comes out of it comes out. And that's in October. So it's still a while there. Mm. Um, I've, asked, I've asked Michelle Rowland about um, whether she would consider well it's not really her it's for the treasurer to do under the under the law but um whether the government would consider designating facebook under the code because there's obviously con uh, there was concern about facebook refusing to do deals with um sbs and the conversation around it um they they seem they they wouldn't really say any one way or the other they wouldn't talk about hypotheticals but there seems to be somewhat of a reluctance there but mm. i guess we'll just have to wait and see i think i think i think what lizzie was saying is right that it's meta is going through quite a tumultuous time at the moment and um yeah it's kind of scrambling around and i, I think that's why they're doing stuff like the the weird instagram glasses and oculus and things like that because they want to everyone's looking for what the next iphone will be what the next sort of generational leap in technology will be uh, when it comes to the internet and Facebook is scrambling around and that's why we're seeing all these weird changes with Instagram trying to be TikTok and, and everything like that as well. So tell me, will it be the Instagram glasses? Are they going to change your life? Put them on again so people can see them and tell us what you're saying uh, if you're wearing them. Well, you don't actually see it. Like they're just normal glasses. It's just they've got cameras in it. That's all. And like, but what, what do you mean they've got cameras in them? It's got lenses there. Uh, to what end? To it, it connects to your phone via Bluetooth and then just like transports the oh, so images from there. Why can't yeah. you just use your phone? <laughs> That's it. Because you don't like, have to hold uh, it like, up. It saves you moving your hands. You still have to open your phone to like look at the photos that you've taken. You, it, it actually removes one step, which is seeing what, how, apart from how you actually see it with your eyes, you can't actually see how the, the image is framed. <laughs> you, you, don't get, you don't get a feed going down there. No. Uh, no. no. That's what have, you been, have you been offered any of this booty yet, David? We'll be looking to see what turns up on your um, register of gifts over the next year. Oh, this is not a gift. This, by the way, this is just like a loaner. I'm going to give it back. <laughs> Welcome properly. We'll, we'll break into the second part of the show and really um, see what you're bringing to the role. So firstly, congratulations on your election to the Senate and also the Greens' position now as being one of the, the key parties in the Senate in holding a balance of power. 
One of the interesting things is, and maybe it's because of the size of your outfit, that you have unified digital rights and IT into a a single one-stop shop, which I think is terrific. So what do you bring to it? And what do you, you know, what's your perspective starting out as the new boy in the in the role? Well, we we um, we're excited about the digital rights platform, and we wanted to clearly mark it out as a platform. It, it, in in many ways, it's a it's a subset of the justice portfolio that I have because a lot of this happens in that space. But it also, we we very much wanted to sort of pull it out and highlight it because we just realize how much work is to be done in the space, and we actually want people to come to us with ideas and um, and and to do some of the thought leadership. And I, I look back at some of the work that Scott Ludlam did as a kind of a really good indicator about about how you can do some thought leadership in the space. But what I'm also excited about is in the balance of power situation that we have in the Senate, we we can actually link that thought leadership out to actual structural policy change and legislative change. We see this as a a great opportunity. We're mapping out exactly the elements we want to target. One of our biggest concerns is getting a handle around the way the different platforms, different outlets using and abusing algorithms and driving um, increasingly towards extremism. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be violent extremism. It can just be counterfactual extremism, very unhelpful. We see that as a potentially very, very dangerous, unhelpful kind of element, which is only going to get worse. And, and you, some of that discussion we were just having with, with Meta seems to be very much indicating that their plan is to to sort of double down in that space, move away from kind of fact-based, um, a sign of centrist, factual kind of position mm. to just whatever encourages clicks and whatever encourages their ad revenue. We, we mm. think that's really dangerous. Almost none of it has transparency. And there's this huge pushback against transparency. And I think many people think that that's an impossible goal to have transparency in this space, but we, we reject that. Um, so I suppose that's, the, that's our first now, first cab off the rank, if you like, we have a lot of also concerns about our privacy laws. Our privacy laws are, you know, 20th century privacy laws for a 21st century problem, and particularly the way in which we get harvest, we mm. platforms harvest our consent. Um, so, so privacy the, on privacy, it's interesting. Both you and Labor come come into a position of exercising power when a lot of work's been done. You know, there's the privacy paper that's sitting with the AG at the moment. I'm interested in what your approach to it will be. There's obviously a few points of friction as you sort of understand as you start kicking the tyres, particularly around um, a separate tort um, of privacy or a separate course of action, but also on the, um, and I'm interested in the view of the Greens on this, the um, exemption that political parties currently have to privacy laws. Well, I mean, I I, I was I was part of getting a, a state um inquiry up into privacy and uh managed to pull together a, a you know enough of enough MPs from across the political spectrum to get support for a tort of privacy and I think absolutely we should have a tort of privacy and there should be some stat- and and we should implement it nationally my only reservation about doing that though is do we create an elite right and that's what I don't want to create I don't want to create an elite right which excludes most people who should have their privacy protected. So do it in a way that doesn't drive it through the federal court or the Supreme Court, but actually makes it a realistic, viable right. And 
I think would be is is a kind of this magic sort of I still don't quite know how to do that create a, a privacy right perhaps a new tort but not just give it to the the super wealthy and privileged and and make it a fight between you know the paparazzi and and a tiny sort of elite part of our society but I, I personally think that's that should be low hanging fruit and creating the tort would actually end up creating a lot of internal reform in most of the platforms if, if we did that. In terms of the right to privacy for political parties, the, the idea that there's just carte blanche carve out for political parties is not right. Whether or not it's the full coverage of the privacy laws or not, I think there are some quite unique things about political communication that, that justify a different form of regulation. But what it doesn't justify is no regulation. And, and that's what we have at the moment. Lizzie? Yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got a few thoughts about how you could make privacy less of an elite right. But um, anyway, I, we, I'm sure if we want to talk about that, we can a bit more. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, David, is there's been uh, a lot of observation about the problems with the digitization of welfare. And, you know, there's been a recent revelation about the role of Palantir, you know, Peter Thiel's shadowy kind of data analytics company. I mean, that's probably putting it smaller than it is, but it's certainly a company that provides services to government about using, creating value from dis disparate data sets. And what for them that usually means is finding ways to make the welfare state more efficient at the expense of some of the most vulnerable people in society. And I wondered if the Greens had thought about this from a digital rights perspective. You know, the Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty had a really good report on this about the digitisation of welfare. We've obviously got a terrible example in the form of robo-debt that did almost exactly that. But you could see, um, you know, large visionary projects like the NDIS being subject to similar kind of programs of rationalisation with a company like Palantir getting involved in that. You know, I know Mike Kelly's taken over, left Parliament, taken over leadership of that organisation. What do you think about the moves by the private sector to infiltrate public services mm. using, you know, data and technology to try and sell a, a neoliberal version of welfare? Well, I mean, that's a fairly loaded question, but the good news is I actually, <laughs> agree, with the, I actually agree with the outcome. Uh, obviously, you know, you talk about rich data sets that people want to get their hands on, and there's a whole series of government data sets that are um, of incredible value. Uh, you know, the Medicare data set, for example, could well be the most valuable data set on the planet because it goes back over decades and decades and decades, and the pharmaceutical industry in particular, amongst others, could reap enormous, enormous profits out of the Medicare database. So I, I think we should be drawing some very hard and fast lines and not letting private entities into public data and particularly data that people are giving because they have no other choice. And, and that's what happens in the welfare state. You don't, if, you, if you face, you know, starvation and homelessness or engaging with the welfare state, you don't really have a choice about handing over your data. And the idea that that then could be preyed upon by private um, entities, I find deeply offensive. But I think part of the... the underlying all of this, the amount of data that's collected for people who want to just basically have a, a payment that they can survive on is an obscene amount of data in most mm. cases. I mean, I would be greatly reducing the amount of data we're collecting about people doing, you know, stop, stop policing the poor, which is largely what our welfare system does, and, um, and, and prevent a chunk of it at the source. Uh, the idea that people's weekly routines, their daily routines are being entered into a Commonwealth database in order for them to get a payment that, you know, 
barely suffices to keep you alive, I find deeply offensive. So I'd, so yes, I, I think we should have hard and fast rules preventing private entities coming into those public databases. I think we should be reducing the amount of data we're collecting compulsorily from people who have no other choice but to engage with the state. Um, but, but there also are some pretty exciting opportunities to use the data to work out some positive interventions in people's lives. If you ever want to have a, an interest, you know, see a politician who loves data, the, the, the New South Wales services, I think he's Minister for Happiness and Good Services, Victor <laughs> Dominello, who's quite a nice bloke in, in some ways. He loves data and uh, he will he will give you a briefing from 15 bureaucrats who'll sit around you and say, well, state governments have enough data about a young person by the time they're four years of age to be able to track their future life trajectory with about a 95% certainty about where they're going to go. And so those data pools are being gathered together by state governments. They're being gathered together by federal governments. That the notional reason is to work out positive interventions in people's lives so as that trajectory can be be adjusted, but you only have to say it to realize just how what many... could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> hey, Josh, any questions for the senator? Yeah, well, a couple. So, I guess similar to that, I think a lot of the issues around the, the collection of data is like we're not really sure what state and federal. Uh, are are collecting about each other that we're seeing more and more pushes for state and federal governments and different i guess councils even to that point to be able to share this sort of data without sort of a discussion about who should have access to it what it should be used for and things like that how do you sort of see that being pushed and i guess and and separately from that i i enjoyed a lot of your work on estimates uh in new south wales i'm just keen to sort of understand what you're planning to do when you get a chance to probe some federal public servants in the next couple of months yeah, well, come, estimates is like a kind of part, a separate part of my brain. So I'll open that up at some point, Josh. But there's this thing called the capability. And, and if you ever wanted to be frightened, you know, come up with a name for a, for an entity or a, or a project, you know, you could call it meta or you could call it the capability. I mean, these are names that just I get super anxious about as soon as I hear them. But the capability is, is exactly that, Josh. It's, it's, a, it's that national data pool which is actually comprised of eight separate data pools, which is each of the states and territories, and they dump all of their driver's license and other licensing and other state data into these separate pools. And then notionally, they're not all shared together in a single pool, mm -hmm. but then the Commonwealth has a kind of um, ubiquitous search capacity to dive into each of the pools at any one moment and and pull out information your facial recognition your you know your, your whereabouts last and um and so that's already happening and 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 it's happening with bugger all kind of controls on it and what, what really offended me at a state level when the the state government signed on to it about two years ago i remember asking the privacy commissioner in new south wales we were passing legislation to empower the, the, the movement of all of this data into this pool and the access by the Commonwealth. And the legislation was all dependent upon a bunch of Commonwealth regulations and Commonwealth legislation that would control it. And none of which had been promulgated and um, none of which had been you know, even drafted. And I remember saying to the New South Wales Privacy Commissioner, you've given this the tick of a green tick. And, and she said, yes. I said, well, how can you possibly on the Privacy Commissioner approve this legislation when all of the major checks and balances are going to be done at a Commonwealth level, and we haven't seen any of them. 
oh, and, and she said, oh, well, we have, you know, we've got a good relationship and we expect that relationship to be strong. And I just, I mean, I was, I was astounded at the time. I'm astounded now. And if you want to know one of the things I want to track down at in budget estimates, well, I've just articulated one of them. <laughs> well, that, um, the controls actually... over the capability. The legislation for that, if I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they, the government withdrew that and it never came back before the parliament ended before the election. So I think the federal legislation that still hasn't actually gone through. Yeah, but all the state data pools mm. are there yep. and the readiness is all there. So what is the Commonwealth's plan? What is the Labor government's plan? And, I, and, and there, there wasn't a lot of, there was almost no national political debate about mm this movement and 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 there's a sense of inevitability to it which is a lot of this stuff there's a sense of inevitability like okay well you could fight it you might oppose it for two months you might have opposed it when the coalition were in but it's going to come and do you want it to come in a slightly less offensive way through labor do you want to wait for the next evil right-wing government to put it in this this is inevitable just you know and and i think we should be fighting against that very idea that this massive data pooling this digital surveillance is, has an inevitability to it yeah, it's interesting that you say that, David. There's a comment in the chat from Dylan, which I think is a, makes a reasonable point. It, in some ways, the surveillance state has kind of been outsourced to the private sector where Facebook holds huge amounts of information, which is a mere warrant away from being accessed by um, state law enforcement bodies. And I remember when Edward Snowden um, leaked the information from the NSA and it was revealed in one of the PowerPoint presentations that the PRISM project by the NSA, you know, to gather huge amounts of data and analyse it, only cost them about $20 million because essentially what they were doing was harvesting data from private enterprise to then analyze themselves at a, at a meta level. And so it's incredibly cheap in relative terms to have this structure in place where you can cherry pick what you want from the private sector. And it's this nexus between privacy regulation and then also the surveillance state and how sometimes they're treated as kind of separate, like the, the government surveils you in one way, the private sector surveils you in another. Whereas in fact, that's not true. There's, there's this in, integral overlap, which makes them both kind of function. And I, I think it's really interesting you were talking about data minimization as one route to kind of talk about that, that that should be an obligation of government, but also the private sector. But what do you think about surveillance as an agenda then? And do you think there's any, any room for movement? I mean, I expect the capability legislation will come back on this term. I think Home Affairs are considering it, but I, I don't get the sense that Labor's really got an appetite to resist the kind of inevitability or the sense of inevitability that you were talking about just then. I don't know if you've got a different view. Well, I mean, that's my concern. And that's one of the reasons we want to ramp up that work over the next six months, because all of the... You know, there's a bunch of security agencies that just use the phrase, oh, well, this is ne necessary for national security. And then all political analysis just seems to end, you know, oh, it's ne necessary for national security. Oh, well, then we just better push it on through. And 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 that is that is a kind of disease of Australian politics at state and federal level. And I think that's something we absolutely need to fight, fight push back against. But this this idea that, you know, the only thing we should be troubled about is the state. I think we should be troubled about state surveillance. I am. <laughs> and, uh, but I think we should be, you know, equally and in some ways perhaps even more troubled by private surveillance because there, there is not even a notional public interest behind any of this. It's all driven by profit. And, in fact, you know, there's a, st there's a statutory obligation for it to be driven by profit. That's what the, the, the regime that corporations work within. You know, it's reminding me of a, a line from a song 
that um, I can't remember the name of it. I think it might be Call Me When You Land. Only advertisers know me is is a kind of, you know, 20, 2022 angst line that somehow catches in my brain. Um, and we've got and, a new and, theme song here. That's good. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, but but I, I do. But but again, we we face this idea that you know this this minimalist role of the state that we shouldn't be out there. There isn't a role for the state to be out there actually regulating, actually controlling, actually prohibiting a whole bunch of this conduct. I mean, how could it possibly be that, that it's some kind of self-restraint that stops Woolworths mm. using facial recognition on us? And, and that self-restraint is only because they've done an analysis that realises actually the shaming and the potential pushback from customers is potentially worse to our profit line than aggressively proceeding with facial recognition. That's not the test. Well, it shouldn't be the test. It's really interesting discussion in the context of really Labor's first big tech engagement was the um, Minister for um, Industry and Science, Ed Husick, launching the getting to 1.2 million jobs um, report for the new Tech Council of Australia. And it strikes me that the the, the other counterweight in this debate is, oh, we're going to make a million new jobs and the only thing standing in the way of all those new jobs is government regulation and government support for industry. And I think it's really interesting to think through whether the role of social licence for the tech sector fits in as well, because, you know, tech can do amazing things we're using it now but there are so many of the business models are tied up with things that are being shown to have negative side effects and consequences so i don't know what you bring to that i'm assuming with the greens great greens will be a little bit more skeptical of the industry um narratives than labor dave yeah well, i mean we are skeptical of the industry but we're also excited by it i mean this is actually really exciting and important part of 21st century life. Like I, I, I think it gives us a whole lot of additional potential social dimensions, a whole lot of additional connections. Like I often, I often hear people so anxious about how much time young people spend on social media. But then, when you ever, if whenever there's polls done about social, about you know um, anyone under 30s kind of social values, they're the most empathetic engage, connected um, generation that we've ever produced. So there's an extraordinary potential benefit from it. But the idea that we should uncritically take their propaganda and uncritically agree to it having an ever-expanding role in our lives and a, and a sort of boundless role in our lives, I think is, is, is probably is where the Greens very much draw the line. And I think trying to articulate that this is not all inevitable, that this complete extension of surveillance state, private and, and, and public, is absolutely not inevitable. And in fact, if we treat it as inevitable, we've already lost. So, so I don't pretend I have all the answers sitting here now. I've really brought some really good people on my team who are going through the process of educating Senator Shoebridge in some of this space, which is actually really an important part of the next few months of my work in this space. But also this kind of engagement and thought-provoking engagement is really helpful as well. All right, Josh? Yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where I, I, I was quite heartened by the fact that the pushback on Bunnings and Kmart kind of made them withdraw a little bit. But I think a lot of these things could just be resolved by sort of a, a tour of privacy, essentially. Um, but yeah, to David's earlier point about need to make sure it's it's done in a way that that doesn't sort of disadvantage 
people who who don't have access to the courts or anything like that. One th- one thing that I thought maybe maybe will work out it was it came out of the I think the Productivity Commissioner's sort of right to repair report. They would they were talking about in that report about the potential for the ACCC to essentially run cases on the behalf of consumers where there had been you know sufficient issues with a device not being able to be repaired in warranty and things like that. You could probably apply that to some degree to some some issues with privacy if if, it, if you've got enough people having an, an issue with facebook you could get someone to run a case like that anyway maybe something along those lines well what about a privacy commissioner with um an actual privacy <laughs> commission and an actual interest and a budget um, state or federal um yeah, yeah and a budget yeah but also an interest and and willing to act to call out the government of the day and willing to actually critique some of this stuff because the last time i saw a a sensible critique from a privacy commissioner was probably about eight years ago. Um, a sort of kind of systemic, con- continued, you know, critique from a privacy commissioner. Increasingly, the privacy commissioners see them as making this inevitable attack on our privacy slightly, slightly less offensive, with a couple of protocols between government agencies about how the data will be shared. Mm. I mean, I, I do think that the current, um, the Office of the Information Commissioner federally, like they made a fine decision about, you know, the scraping of, fa- of image data for Clearview AI, but there's almost no consequences that flow from that when the company just carries on doing what it's doing when it's not headquartered in Australia. So I, to some degree, I agree with you, but I, I mean, I think they don't have resources. They're facing a funding cliff. I'm, I'm sure you'll be working with the current government to try and address that potentially. I mean, I would put a picture in my other hat as well as as a class actions lawyer, and I do think there is a role for class actions to play to address mass harms, especially when those harms are quite small in isolation, but considerably generate considerable profit for companies at a, at a mass scale. And I do wonder whether there's a role for private enforcement, you know, much in the same way that the ACCC regulates or enforces the Competition and Consumer Act. We also rely on people suing directors when they've done the wrong thing. And our super funds are at risk of that. Um, you know, for transparency in the marketplace, you also rely on private enforcement to do that. So I think there's other mechanisms in place that will facilitate that partly because the harm tends to be a little uh, difficult to articulate like when your data is being mined you don't necessarily know what that harm might be at that instant and also the harm really isn't experienced by you it's experienced as a collective as part of a cohort of people which is you know that data is then sold on and used for different purposes so there's something I think that we need to look at about how to make this a collective right rather than an individual one alone. Mm. Well, I 100% agree with you. Look, as a, you know, as a, I've still got my ticket as a barrister. I'm, I'm all for enforcing <laughs> rights. Don't you worry about it. And a right without a remedy is actually no right at all. So there actually does need to be a remedy attached to this. And one of the, one of the benefits of a tort, you know, um, is that you do get a couple of lead cases and those lead cases can change broader practice. So that is, that is one of the benefits of a tort. But in this area, in the kind of data, you know, particularly data breaches, privacy breaches, you've got, you can have, you know, 1.5 million kind of micro offences and no one person has a sufficiently, is sufficiently pissed off or harmed to justify bringing the case. And so that's where either a really empowered uh, and resourced regulator is really important. But I don't pretend everything is answered by regulators. So there is also a place for some class actions in those those spaces. But that's part of one of the the public policy problems we have here. A whole lot of, you know, micro offences, if you like, 
which have these micro impacts on our privacy, these micro impacts on our online sense of ourselves. And which one of them are you willing to, are you willing to take on? Probably none of them are you willing to take on as an individual. So good regulation, uh, a good, a well-resourced regulator, as well as I think there's some real benefits in having that taught a privacy to drive better practice. Thanks for your generosity and your time, David. Good luck with the new role. It's incredibly important to have somebody like you in that role of working with the new government to drive what is a really packed agenda already. And we look forward to an ongoing engagement, having you drop in from time to time and let us know, you know, what you're doing and what, what we're doing wrong. No, no, thanks, Ben. I look, I, I think actually even though this is an observed exchange, which is probably even better, these <laughs> kinds of exchanges are, um, I think, I think really important. And, and one of the one one of the things we are contemplating doing over the next couple of months is pulling together a couple of roundtables to discuss some of these issues to help inform our policy, because there are potentially multiple solutions, and they maybe all should be tried at once. Um, and, and we're keen to to bring mm. people into that sort of policy development. Lizzie, anything coming up on the Digital Rights Watch agenda? Well, just as I mentioned, we're going to be releasing our report on rebalancing the internet economy, which um, did some kind of community research based community based research work on how we could make the internet work better for creatives, for activists, and the like. And um, you know, I'll be making sure you get a copy of that report, David. Um, but it'll be launched in coming weeks, and um, it's a combination of eighteen months of work on this uh, in the shadow of the news media bargaining code, looking at how these platforms dominate um, content creation and how we could do better. So yeah, keep it. If you're on our email list, if you keep an eye out for an invitation to that launch, and if you're not, feel free to join it. And Josh, you're taking your um, Instagram sunnies off on a couple of weeks <laughs> hard earned. We're looking forward to some updates. Oh god, um, I don't think I'll be taking them. <laughs> too expensive if you lose them, eh? Yeah, pretty much. And yeah, just don't want the the people sort of staring at me. Actually, the thing that I'm kind of concerned about um, because I've been writing about it so much is the. Um, uh, coming back through customs and border force searching through my phone i kind of am worried but also interested to see if i'll be a test case for for whether because they can actually compel me to hand over my passwords so. you get one phone call josh you can give me a ring <laughs> <I will do. laughs> turn, off, turn off your facial recognition too josh yep, that's yep. my advice to people at protests when they're confronting um the police turn off your um facial yeah, recognition before you go across yeah yep. good 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 lesson for life in general i think David. <laughs> You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on August 5. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforindustrialtechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal Land. Talk again in a fortnight.